there is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. We're nearing the halfway point of season one. So far, we've seen threats from extraterrestrials, ghostly apparitions, sentient clouds of energy, foreign governments, and even our own government. Tonight, our threat lies deep in the waters of the nation of San Blas. This threat is in the form of an underwater creature that has evolved over millennia. Of course, this is roughly 30 years before CGI, so bringing this creature to life would have to be done by a man in a suit. Of course, this is nothing new to the Outer Limits. We've seen men in costumes before, but this is maybe the bulkiest one since the Thetan being in the Architects of Fear. According to David J. Scow's The Outer Limits Companion, the manufacture of the full-body amphibian suit was the largest single Outer Limits job handed to Project Unlimited. The mold for the suit weighed 300 pounds, and everyone had to gather around just to lift it into the oven. Byron Haskin and Hua Chang collaborated on the design, which was froggish, toothy, and a bit wall-eyed. The hump on the creature's back was added to make room for the scuba tank the suit actor would have to wear underneath. Tonight's episode is a straightforward tale of discovery and the tug-of-war between two sides to exploit the discovery. In the Outer Limits retrospective, Tom Baxter says, The most obvious point of reference here is the creature from the Black Lagoon, and possibly a slice of King Kong, but the greedy capitalist tries to exploit monster angle. He's not wrong either. As the episode goes on, it's hard not to think of those two films. Which side will have rightful claim to the creature? And will the creature submit to the will of man? We'll have our answers soon. Now as always, I will be spoiling tonight's episode, so if you haven't seen Tourist Attraction, you can find it streaming on Hulu and Amazon Prime in addition to the incredible Blu-rays from the folks at Kino Lorber. Now let's sit quietly while Vic Perrin's control voice sets the stage for tonight's episode, Tourist Attraction. In man's dark and troubled history, there are vestiges of strange gods. This stone statue was once such a god a thousand years gone by in the central mountains of Pan America. Today, new gods have emerged. The god of power, the god of money, the Republic of San Blas lies west of the Orinoco Basin, slightly north of the equator. Its principal exports are coffee, copra, mahogany, mace, and saffron. In a hundred odd years, the reins of government have changed many times in blood and fire and death. The last of these revolutions was led by General Juan Mercurio, the most absolute and powerful ruler of them all. Only the Indians who live close to old gods in the volcanic uplands are unimpressed. They have seen the coming of conquistadors with the power of their guns and flashing flags, the revolutionaries with the power of their zeal and willingness to die. 
the Americans with the power of their money and bulldozers, with their summer houseboats in the crater lake of Aripana, with their gadgets and machines and devices. Written by Dean Reisner, directed by Laszlo Benedict, who previously directed The Man with the Power, director of photography, John Nicholas. This episode aired for the first time on Monday, December 23rd, 1963. We open on a small vessel on the lake of San Blas, where John Dexter and his crew are testing underwater research equipment. Accompanying the men are Lynn Arthur, a local magazine writer, and marine biologist Tom Evans, who is explaining the new equipment to Mr. Dexter. This is our deep water research setup, Mr. Dexter. Closed circuit TV, hydrophones. Oh, and this is sounding gear. Ceramic transducer capable of sending out half millisecond pulses. Now, each pulse can be traced on this precision graphic recorder. Now, the principle's pretty much like Yeah, this. yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand the principle. Let's see how it works. Okay. All right, Skipper. Let's get it in the water. John Dexter is played by actor Ralph Meeker, who appeared in episodes of Suspense, The Dirty Dozen, The Dead Don't Die, and Stanley Kubrick's Paths of Glory, just to name a few. They lower an underwater camera into the lake, and we get underwater footage of vines and weeds. We then see a figure peeking through the seaweed. Evans, come here! Going down? I just saw something. Like what? I didn't get too good a look at it, but I had hands and feet. Tom Evans is played by actor Jerry Douglas, who made appearances in Bonanza, Dragnet, and Irwin Allen's Land of the Giants, just to name a few. Evans looks at the monitor, but dismisses the figure as nothing more than a lungfish. Dexter is sure it's something more. He grabs his gear along with the spear gun, and dives into the water while Tom watches the monitor. There he is. How long have you known him? Oh, about a week. He sent a lawyer down to buy up my outfit. But I wasn't about to sell. And one day he came down himself. Next thing I know, he was the boss and I was the general manager. Little birds have been known to fly right into his pockets. Fact is, I'm really not a businessman anyway. What are you? I'm a marine biologist. Well, you must be pretty good at it. He kept you on. John Dexter only keeps the cream of the crop. And uh, what crop are you the cream of, Miss Arthur? Me? Oh, well, I came with a little magazine he bought up last year. And by the way, anybody who rubs my back with suntan oil automatically is entitled to call me Lynn. Rules of the house. More, please? I, uh... I didn't know he had a magazine. No, he doesn't. Not anymore. We did an article on him. He didn't like it, so he bought the magazine and canned everybody. Everybody but you? Well, I was a special case. I wrote the article. And he told me this job was open, so I, uh, took it. What do you do down here? Resident secretary. That's sort of a den mother with shorthand. I live here, keep the house running, send in weekly reports of all of his southern hemisphere companies, and uh, generally await his pleasure. 
Lynn Arthur is played by actress Janet Blair, who appeared in episodes of The Red Skelton Hour, The Smith Family, Love Boat, and Murder, She Wrote. We watch Mr. Dexter searching underwater when the control voice returns to explain what we're watching. Moving through the deeps, protected only by a tank of air and a hunting spear, the scientist explorer descends beyond the sandblast shelf. But all unknown to him, the observer is himself observed. Hidden in the sinuous rills of seaweed, sightless eyes, blind for centuries, stare out of the abyss. The legendary creature of the deep, sensing through nerve receptors in its skin, becomes aware of the alien invader, man. That's the thing about underwater footage. If it's a long sequence, unless you've got some type of voiceover, it could seem glacial in terms of pacing. Which is why I had a hard time watching Thunderball for my first time. Also, this is one of a very few times when the control voice chimes in during the episode instead of just the beginning and end. This will happen again when we get to Soldier. So unbeknownst to Dexter, the creature is nearby the whole time he's down there. He is sensed by the creature since the creature is sightless. Dexter returns to the surface. We got another bottle of air? Hey, you haven't got time, Dex. We're due at the General's at seven. Well, forgot about his nibs. You too, Tom. It's cocktails. Hope you brought your drinking shoes along. <laughs> Sorry, I got a date. Oh, will you? Oh, it's with Professor Aravello of the university. Well, don't stay out too late. We're going to get an early start in the morning. I'm going to find that thing, whatever it is. We're at home where Mr. Dexter is staying. He just got off the phone with someone requesting that he head to Rome the next day. Butler runs down and hands him a drink and suggests that he stay longer and relax. Maybe check out General Mercurio's World Fair, because it's been empty for two months. There just aren't any tourists. Dexter suggests they get rid of General Mercurio. Then maybe tourists will come. But he's warned not to criticize the general, because as he puts it, the general has very big ears lately. He says the general does a lot of good, but just does it badly. The dam General Mercurio is so proud of is already crumbling in different places. Dexter cuts him off and asks if Miss Arthur is behaving herself. Just then, Miss Arthur walks into the room, visibly angry by what she just heard. She walks past Dexter and reminds him that their invitation is for 7 p.m. We then get a very tense car ride. What's the trouble with you? Is she behaving herself? Well, now, just think that one over. Do you think I'm worried about these five and dime Valentinos down here? Behaving means getting plenty of sleep and three meals a day. Do you know how many times you've been down here in the last six months? Twice. Once for two days and once for a day and a half. And now you're going to Rome. This is business. You know, sometimes I wish I'd never heard of you. You or your job. You want a pink slip, write it yourself. I'm not gonna help you out. We then get footage of a fiesta in the streets, complete with fireworks and costumes. I'll be honest, this B-roll footage repeated in certain parts and played so long that it felt like they were padding the episode to fill out the runtime. We then fade into a room full of people where General Mercurio is entertaining his guests. 
When Mr. Dexter and Miss Arthur enter the room, the general heads toward them. With a grimace on his face, he looks up and down at Mr. Dexter. Ah, Senor Dexter. General. The lovely one. What brings you to San Blas? I'm testing some underwater research gear. Just bought up a little firm, sort of a hobby. Well, you've come a long way to practice your hobby. But then, why not? Permiso. Senor Dexter. It has been far too long since we have spoken. I uh, think I can make it myself, General. Of course, I forget. North American men do not like to be touched. Latins are different. We do not feel it is unmanly to show friendship or emotion. I kissed my father until the very day he died. You didn't know my father, did you? No. No, of course not. Once he told me, Juanito, beware of jeweled men. And now I myself am bejeweled. But of course he met rich. Like you, senor. And you. I would be happier in a barrio. Believe it. I only live this way because my people wanted so. General Juan Mercurio is played by actor Henry Silva, who would go on to appear in Hawaii Five-0, Buck Rogers of the 25th Century, and in a night gallery segment titled The Doll. He would also go on to play the role of the villainous Bane in multiple iterations of the Batman and Superman animated series. Mercurio tells Dexter there is nothing he won't do for his people. He has given his people clean streets and electricity powered by the dam bearing his name. I did these things for my people. Do you believe that? If you say so. You're a liar, senor. You think I'm a tyrant? All Yankees do. True? Not true. Then why do the Yankees not come to San Blas? To my beautiful World's Fair. Why? What do you want from me? You're a man of great influence in your country. I was thinking perhaps a word to a publisher or two, a pleasant article about San Blas, even myself. That's impossible, Mercurio, and you know it. We are very much alike in many ways. Mercurio leaves the room when Dexter notices a stone figure on the desk. It looks like a large fish with two legs. One of Mercurio's men walks into the room. Ah, here's Senor Dexter. Hi. Senor. What is this thing? A very old god, Senor. Very old and very prominent in the folklore of our country. It is said that the ancient ones could speak with them. Hmm. Has anybody ever seen anything like that? Occasionally, Indian fishermen in the Lake Aripana have come back with stories. Let's go. We've got to make it an early evening. I'm going to be diving all day tomorrow. What about home? Forget it. Something else came up. It's the next morning. Dexter and his crew are lowering a camera into the water. Evans and Dexter check the sonar monitor when they hear a screeching sound. Evans says it sounds like dolphins, but they can't be in these waters. Evans and Dexter jump into the water while we watch them descend and load their harpoon guns. As they search the bottom of the lake, we see a figure slowly moving in the murky background. The two men turn and discover the creature swimming towards them. 
both men fire harpoons into the creature. Evans bails toward the surface as Dexter swims towards the creature and grapples him. You know, watching these two struggle underwater reminded me of the famous zombie versus shark scene from Fulci's Zombie 2. They continue to fight amidst a flurry of bubbles until the creature passes out and goes limp. We then see the creature being lifted out of the water and placed onto the deck. Dexter calls Evans over to pose for a photo with the slain creature. Dexter's face is beaming with pride, but Evans' face is telling a whole different story. He looks troubled, almost guilty. Dexter instructs his crew to put the creature on ice and take it back to the marine lab. He then pulls his harpoon out of the creature's shoulder and gives it to Miss Arthur. As he puts it, it'll make a nice souvenir. We fade to a room where members of the press are gathered. A gentleman in a suit stands beside an image of a large fish and addresses the crowd. Ladies and gentlemen of the press, please, may I have your attention? I am Professor Arivello, Marine Biology Department, University of San Blas. Now, a few words of explanation regarding the being that you are all waiting to see. In 1938, off the coast of Africa, a native fisherman pulled in his net one day and astounded the world with the discovery of the silicon. A fish thought to be extinct some 50 million years. In that room is a creature whose line, in my opinion, is half as old as the world itself. 300 million years. Please, Senor Evans. The one that we are most interested in, the ichthyosaurs, or fish lizard, part crocodile, part whale, or dolphin. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my opinion that the creature in the next room evolved directly from... General Mercurio enters the room along with two armed guards. He wants to see the creature. As he is led to the freezer, Dexter tells Miss Arthur to have an icebox ready in the morning. He wants to get this thing to the States as quickly as possible. Mercurio and the press are now in the freezer with the unconscious creature. Now the creature seems to be mainly aquatic, but I would say it has reached a stage of evolution where it can live on land for short periods of time. But notice what you might call the fingers. It is a wonder Mr. Dexter was not torn to shreds. My spear was in its shoulder. But there is no sign of a wound. I want a man watching this thing at all times. No one is to move it, no one is to touch it. Understand? Yes, Your Excellency. You may now take your photographs. The General stands proudly beside the creature while flash bulbs light the room. As everyone exits, Miss Arthur comes in. She tells Dexter the pilot will be ready tomorrow morning. As they make their exit, Professor Ravello walks in with the groundskeeper. Paco, I have a very special job for you. You are to stay in this room all night and do not let anyone enter that room for any reason, no one. Orders from the general. Oh. Now, I want to show you something very important. Paco, this is the thermostat for the cold room. 
It is set at the freezing point exactly. Now, I do not want the temperature to go below nor above. You understand? Yes, Professor. Not touch. It's later, and Paco is sitting outside the door of the freezer. There is a knock on the door, and he is visited by his friend Mario, who has brought with him a checkerboard and a bottle of wine. As Paco happily sets up the checkerboard, a visibly cold Mario walks over to the thermostat and turns up the heat. While the two drink and play checkers, we see the ice melting, and the creature slowly starts to regain consciousness. Paco and Mario continue their game when they hear a loud noise. They turn their attention to the freezer door, which bursts open. The creature is alive and trying to escape. Mario flees for help while Paco is left in a room. The creature emits a sound that brings Paco to his knees and then the floor. Mario returns with a group of men, including an officer. What's going on here? That thing, it got loose. Don't shoot! It won't hurt you. It could have killed me, but it stopped. It tore a hole right through that door. Come on, use the nets. surround the creature and capture it in their net. We then see the creature suspended above a water tank where Dexter is staring in disbelief. How did it get out? I would have sworn I killed it. The temperature went wrong in the cold room. Paco says he tore open the door. Tore it open? Well, pulverized it. But this is powdered iron. Did you say powdered iron? It has been subjected to a tremendous pressure of some kind. I would say it was a concussion force. There was no burn place, and Paco said there was no explosion. They say it gave off some kind of high-pitched scream. Like that sound it's making now? No, no, they say it was different. This sound it made was loud enough to break things. Well, the only thing I can figure is some kind of supersonic impulses concentrated into a beam. Now, we've set up an oscilloscope to try to read the frequency. Does it give off any kind of a pattern? Oh, very definitely. It's like the distress cries of certain species of dolphins. I'd say it's signaling. Mr. Evans, you say it's giving off a definite pattern of sounds, like words? Well, you could call it that. Then it might be possible to talk with this thing? It might be. We've established certain speech patterns with dolphins. Sound for come, go, danger, distress, and so on. We tape these and play them back in underwater amplifiers. Now, the dolphins do respond. And as our tape vocabulary increases, so will our ability to communicate with them in direct ratio. And this thing is like a dolphin. As far as sound goes. You see, the dolphin gives a single tone burst as an information carrier. But the harmonic pattern with this one is a lot more complex. Professor Ayavello, what is your opinion of this? For the record, sir. If we can establish communication with this creature, 
It will be, beyond doubt, one of the most important scientific breakthroughs of the century, if not of all time. Mm -hmm. uh, General Mercurio has stated his belief that this thing will make his fare the success it deserves to be. Those are his words. Do you agree with him, sir? Well, I would not disagree with the General. However, I must add that to think of this marvelous discovery as a tourist attraction is to degrade and belittle the world of science. And it is to that world and that world alone that this discovery belongs. We're back at Miss Arthur's place, where she, Evans, and Dexter have just returned. <sighs> Took a lot of guts, is expressing those anti-mercurial sentiments to the press. Not to mention in the presence of you, Mr. Dexter. Me? Why? Well, you seem to be a friend of Mercurio's. What do you know about guts, Evans? I get the feeling that you don't really fit in, Evans. <laughs> Am I fired? You're fired. Why? Just because he thinks you're a friend of Mercurio's? He knows why. All right. I froze down there this morning. Anybody can freeze. Can't freeze and work for me. Well, what about Professor Ravello? He's expecting me to work with him. Go ahead, but you won't be working for me. I won't pay you. And when I look at you, I won't even see you. Can you take that kind of an arrangement? I can try. It took courage for him to say that. Women like that in men, don't they? They admire it, that's all. He'll be back in the States by morning. Does it make you feel extra hard and powerful to think the people who are more human than you are less magnificent than you? Lay off, Lynn. Well, now don't tell me I've touched something. There are a lot of people around who'd be glad to come down here and give me a bad time for nothing. I don't need it from you. It wasn't part of our deal. Oh, yes, I forgot. That's your life story, isn't it? Every relationship is a deal. Well, I've been holding out on you in this deal, Dex. Holding out what? Oh, just a few little things that I couldn't bargain with even if I wanted to. Love, pity, tears. Exception noted. Love, pity, and tears, they're all yours, Lynn. I don't need them. You know, Dex, once, about five million years ago, I had the silly notion that I was in love with you. But it's just as impossible to love a beautiful machine that's self-sealing, non-flammable, impervious to wind or weather. You may not need love, pity, or tears. But I need to give those things. Janet Blair is great in this scene. You can see the pain in her eyes as she expresses her feelings to Dexter, knowing that her words are falling on deaf ears. John Dexter, like Ian Fraser before him, is too consumed by his work to notice what's right in front of him. Miss Arthur walks off, leaving Dexter looking pensive in the hallway. It's the next morning, and Dexter arrives to take the creature. How soon can I move him, Professor? 
Move him? Where? I'm flying him back to the States. We've got a tank welded. They're putting it aboard now. Don't worry, it's for science. I'll handle Mercurio. It is not that. The experiment to interrupt it now, it has been talking to us. Listen, show it, please. We set up a two-way microphone at the interface of the dam. We are hoping another creature will... Sounds like a school of them. A school of those things? It's a well-known fact that dolphins will try to rescue a member of the species. That's true of most species. Evans turns and glares at Dexter for that barbed statement. The noise grows louder, and we see a number of creatures assembling at the foot of the dam. Just then, General Mercurio storms into the room. This war must come out. We can move the tank on rollers. Yes, Your Excellency. This discovery has been declared a national treasure, and it will be called Ichthyosaurus Mercurius. Now, the people of San Blas... It belongs to me, General, and I've already made other plans for it. God! If anyone touches this creature without my permission, your orders are to shoot to kill. Mercurio leaves the room with his guard watching Dexter and Evans. All of a sudden, Miss Arthur enters the room with a few more members of crew. With the guard distracted, Dexter punches the guard and takes his weapon. He instructs everyone to get this creature to the plane at once. The creature is being wheeled out when Evan stops Dexter. Listen, what is it now? Let it go. Let it go back into the lake. I think they're going to try to rescue him. Well, we can't tell what they might do. They aren't going to do anything. Dex, please listen to him. Who knows what will happen to this town to all the people? That's Mercurio's problem. Now look, you brought that thing here. It's your problem too. All right, it's my problem and I'm handling it. Let's go. Dexter and his crew are loading the creature into the back of a truck when Miss Arthur turns around and sees many more creatures crawling out of the lake. One by one, they come crawling towards Dexter and his men. They are angry. They want the creature back. In a panic, Dexter begins firing his machine gun at all the creatures. He suddenly stops firing and is brought to his knees by the collective screeching of the creatures. Evans instructs the men to cut the creature loose, and they do so. The creature then joins the group as they turn and head back into the lake. Dexter stares in disbelief when the control voice returns to explain what happens next. Stressed and strained by constant drilling of ultrasonic beams, the concrete face of the dam cracks and falls. Ten million tons of pressure builds toward ultimate collapse. The dam crumbles, releasing all the water. He gets shots of devastation as the water destroys buildings and floods the land. He then fades to the cleanup and rescue efforts underway, as Dexter, Evans, and Miss Arthur are surveying the damage. You look pretty good in there today. To you? That isn't the compliment it used to be, Evans. You really think he's a coward? He does. And if he doesn't come back here and face you, so do I. And so will you. Miss Arthur approaches Dexter, who turns toward her and steps forward. Don't get too close. 
Rome. What's the deal? Let's play it by ear. The two join hands and walk into the distance. You see a soldier cleaning debris off a dead body. They roll the body over, and it is revealed to be the lifeless body of General Juan Mercurio. The soldiers begin removing his corpse, and the control voice takes us out. The forces of nature will not submit to injustice. No man has the right, nor will the checks and balances of the universe permit him to place his fellows under the harsh yoke of repression. Nor may he again place the forces of nature under the triple yoke of vanity, greed, and ambition. In the words of Shelley, here lies your tyrant who would rule the world immortal. Now Tom Baxter says in the Outer Limits retrospective that this episode becomes rather dull at times. And enjoyable monsters aside, doesn't really lodge in the memory the way the best Outer Limits stories do. And you know, I partly agree with them. I didn't find the episode boring, though. I really did enjoy the look of the creature as well. However, I found John Dexter to be a hard character to root for. Sure, he's work-obsessed, but that's been almost every main character in this series so far. Now, John Meeker's serious approach to his character's determination was especially hard to buy into coming off of the borderland where the main character was fueled by a very visible passion. I also didn't think there was very much chemistry between Dexter and Miss Arthur at all. Even in the end, when Dexter realizes his own feelings for Miss Arthur, it felt cold. You know, to be honest, it felt like there was more chemistry between Miss Arthur and Tom Evans. All this being said, I still think it's a solid episode. We now turn to David J. Scow's The Outer Limits Companion to sharpen the image with some trivia. Leslie Stephens had the following to say about the episode. I didn't get too involved in that show, although I did insist the fish be true to form and not have two legs or something. The script called for hundreds of these creatures. We could only afford three. When the suits absorbed water, they would become waterlogged, which made them very heavy and very hard to move around in. And finally, underwater cameraman and stunt regular Paul Stater initiated a hand-clapping gesture for the fishmen to use to indicate their need to surface. On one occasion, the signal was misinterpreted as a hammy self-applause for a successfully completed shot, and Stevens recalled watching rushes in which the monsters would suddenly surface, tear their heads off, yelling, I'm drowning! Well, folks, you can find recent episodes on iTunes and Spotify but the archive can be found over on the mothership that is at twilightzonepodcast.com. If you'd like to share your thoughts and memories on the show, you can email me at victor at theouterlimitspodcast.com. You can find the show on Twitter by searching at OuterLimitsPod. And if we're more of an Instagram person, you can search for The Outer Limits Podcast. I want to say thank you to iTunes users Kaya520 and Colonel Alpha for your kind and generous iTunes reviews. I also want to say thank you to Matt Hurt for mentioning the show on a recent episode of his podcast, Anthology. So that about wraps it up for now. 
Join me next time when I cover episode 14 of season 1 titled The Zenti Misfits. Until that time, I am Victor Gambo, and I return control to you.